This is Guns and Butter. general ideological justification for imperialism has to change. It can't be, at least on a world scale, it can't be the war on terror anymore. The war on terror remains as a secondary or tertiary point, but the stuff about bin Laden, al-Qaeda, the war on terror, Islamofascism, and so forth, that has got to be put on the back burner. And instead, you go back to Carter, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The new reason to invade countries and destroy them is now human rights and humanitarian concerns. Let me just make the general thesis at the beginning is Bush, Cheney, neocons out, Rockefeller, trilateral, Brzezinski, Soros, in. That's the main thing. Silent coup, cold coup, behind the scenes. And most people have no idea. And it's just amazing that they don't. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Power Shift in Washington. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. Today we discuss his newest article, U.S. Policy Shift on Iran-Iraq Again Shows Brzezinski Rules in Washington. Tarpley is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA. Against Oligarchy, a collection of essays and speeches from the years 1970 to 1996, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is also author of Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, Your Guide Through the Greatest Financial Crisis in Human History. Webster Tarpley's latest book is Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate. Soon to be published is Obama, the unauthorized biography. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be back, and I'm glad you're back. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Webster. It's good to be back. Your latest article, U.S. Policy Shift on Iran-Iraq, again shows Brzezinski rules in Washington, lays out an argument that an almost complete power shift has taken place in Washington, that the neocons are out, and that the Brzezinski, trilateral, Rockefeller, Soros phase of aggression is in. What evidence is there that a new clique is in power in Washington? Well, there's, there's pretty massive evidence, and this is a process that was going on all during late 2006 and 2007, uh, although it was, not, it was not clear what the outcome would be until the very end of 07 and the beginning of 08. And the, the signposts along the way are that from the imperialist point of view of London and uh, Washington in general, the tactics of Bush and Cheney, the war on terror, the neocon raging against Islamofascism, the whole world that made to revolve around bin Laden and al-Qaeda, all of these things, which are, of course, absurd myths to begin with, right? They're all fabricated on the basis of this 9-11 provocation, which actually came from inside the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, all of that, whatever it was, had reached a point of diminishing returns. And the last really big terror stunt had been London, uh, July 7th of 2005. And after that, 
the credibility of these terror incidents had lapsed almost to the point of being a laughingstock. So there was also a much more acute phase of imperialist crisis beginning. You could see this, uh, you know, in the summer of 2007, we did some programs about it. Uh, that was the beginning of a world economic uh, financial breakdown crisis around the death agony of the dollar, dollar hyperinflation, banking panic, uh, and uh, the loss of the status of the dollar as a reserve currency in the world. So we've entered into a much more acute new phase of imperialist crisis, and the, uh, the ruling elite has registered that fact to some degree, uh, if only through the fact that, that Bush and Cheney are simply not tenable as a system to govern the United States. Uh, they're increasingly hated, isolated, and so forth. So the, the big idea is now to have a really breathtaking shift, and that's what we've seen, is a complete change of direction in the way things are going, which is going to become more and more obvious uh, as, as time goes on. And basically the idea is this. Instead of trying to focus on the Middle East... And instead of having a policy that is completely dictated or seemingly by the security needs of Israel and the desire to crush the leading Arab and Islamic states, Iraq uh, or Iran, now the, the thrust becomes a much different one. And it becomes the following. Where is the center of world resistance to the U.S. and the British? If you want to have the U.S. British Empire go on for another century, what must you do? Because the, the obvious danger is it won't. It's ending. It's collapsing before your eyes. So the answer that is given to this by a faction uh, in the ruling elite, I would call it the Rockefeller, Trilateral, Bilderberger, uh, Soros, Brzezinski faction. We can go through that in some detail, but it's a... Um, you can call it a center-left faction uh, of the ruling elite. Uh, their answer to it is the only serious resistance to U.S.-British imperialism in the world is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which, as you know, is that uh, cooperation between Russia and China that has proven attractive to some of the countries of the former Soviet Central Asia, and it somehow has exercised some pull on on Iran to some degree, on uh, India to some degree, on Pakistan, and also on Japan, we could say. So the new policy is don't make the world revolve around the Middle East. That's an illusion. The Middle East is a sideshow. But rather, focus on smashing Russia and China in any way you can, and above all, splitting Russia from China. There was an attempt to try to split Russia from China that was undertaken by the Bush administration at the so-called uh, the Lobster Summit in Kennebunkport, Maine, when Putin came over about a year ago. That was an offer by the U.S. and the British to the Russians to say, here, you become our tool against China, and we will support you. Putin said, obviously, no. Big yet on that one. Now, Brzezinski, in particular is attempting to approach this from the side of China, from the side of weakening China, isolating China, stripping China of allies, above all, a worldwide policy of cutting off Chinese access to oil, minerals, and strategic raw materials, especially 
from Africa, because that is where the Chinese have been have been getting their uh, increased uh, need, their increased requirements for oil and other strategic uh, raw materials, minerals in particular. Uh, there's also a change in method. Uh, the neocon outlook essentially says, well, it's going to be the U.S., the British, and the Israelis at war with the rest of the world forever. And if you see an enemy, you bomb him, you invade him, you overthrow him with your own military forces. Now, the Brzezinski group, and I'm, I would use Brzezinski again as a kind of a shorthand for this, again, Rockefeller trilateral Bilderberger, Council on Foreign Relations, Rand Corporation, uh, Soros Group. Uh, it's the group behind Obama, I have to m- mention. Their approach is different. Remember, we're going back to the methods that were deployed by Brzezinski during the Carter administration. Brzezinski would say that he destroyed the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union by playing the Soviets against Afghanistan, or the Afghanistans against the Soviets. Uh, in other words, this is when the Afghan war started. Brzezinski has boasted that when he sent special forces teams of the U.S. into Afghanistan, that is what got the Soviets riled up to the point that they invaded Afghanistan around Christmas of 1979. Another good example is the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, this also happened on Brzezinski's watch. Uh, Brzezinski would say, look, uh, the Iranian regime was there. Uh, we convinced Saddam Hussein that he should attack them, and we've basically weakened both of these countries with a war that went on for 10 years with millions and millions of casualties. So this is Brzezinski's characteristic method. It's a much more sophisticated kind of imperialism. Today, Brzezinski would say to the neocons, you talk about bombing Iran. You're insane. You're too weak for this. The Iranian countermeasures will destroy you economically. So Brzezinski would argue against the neocon uh, demand for an attack on Iran. Brzezinski would say, rather, why don't you think creatively and find a way to play Iran against Russia? Brzezinski would start from the point that if you do a public opinion poll in Iran, there is, at least according to many uh, observers that I've talked to, and I've, I've tried to inform myself about this point, the foreign country that is most disliked in Iran is Russia. Not the U.S., not the British, not what you'd think, but Russia. Part of it has to do with the fact that during World War II, there was a lend-lease corridor of uh, logistics that went from the, uh, the coast of Iran up into Russia, Soviet Union, as part of the effort in World War II. So under that, the British occupied the southern half of Iran, and the Soviets occupied the northern half, including Tehran. And the Soviets naturally behave in a rather abrasive way when they go to militarily occupy foreign countries. So there's a great deal of anti-Russian sentiment in Iran. So Brzezinski would say, why antagonize Iran? Why not play Iran against the Russians or against the Chinese, as the case may be, and get rid of all of them that way at very little cost to yourself? This is why I would say, the people who have been sounding the alarm about a coming attack on Iran, I think this is absolutely misguided. I myself was very concerned about an attack on Iran up to the end of 2007, when it was clear that this was being taken off the table. The moment it, it disappeared from the table was the national intelligence estimate under the Bush administration that said Iran has no 
nuclear weapons program. That was about as clear as you could get, that, that the majority of the U.S. establishment, the machinery of government and the Wall Street uh, forces that, that, uh, that control it, had decided that this was not a good idea, that this was uh, going to be um, suicidal in many ways, that it was much better to take Brzezinski's advice and try to find a way to use Iran as a tool in the same way that Brzezinski had used Afghanistan as an extremely effective tool against uh, the Soviets back, uh, back in the in late 70s and early 80s. So all of this adds up to a shifting field of imperialism. It also means that uh, the general mm, ideological justification for imperialism has to change. It can't be, at least on a world scale, it can't be the war on terror anymore. The war on terror remains as a secondary or tertiary point, but the stuff about bin Laden, al-Qaeda, the war on terror, Islamo-fascism, and so forth, that has got to be um, put on the back burner. And instead, you go back to Carter, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The new reason to invade countries and destroy them is now human rights, and humanitarian concerns. Uh, and let's take, let's take a couple of examples. Burma. Burma is targeted. Uh, why is Burma targeted? Because it's a Chinese ally, and it's also a, an area, a staging ground you can use for China. You've got a lot of monks there. You can get them revved up and send them into China and use them for subversion purposes. You can use them in all sorts of places around Southeast Asia. Uh, however, you can't invade Burma saying this is now Anglo-American imperialism and we're going to roll over Burma. You have to say, oh, the junta in Burma is not efficient in delivering the necessary humanitarian supplies and we want to overthrow them. That actually, they tried to overthrow Burma with a uh, CIA people power coup or color revolution already during 2007. You may remember the previous round of... Uh, attempts there in, in Myanmar or, or Burma. Now they tried it again, uh, and it's interesting, when, when they wanted to, uh, to bring out the policy, they didn't have Bush come out because he's too-hated and too discredited. They had Laura Bush come out and deliver the threats against Burma because uh, they were not delivering the humanitarian aid supplies. Another good example, Zimbabwe. Why, did, why do the U.S. and the British care about Zimbabwe? Well, you have Mugabe. Mugabe, of course, is a dictator. However, if you think about some of the things he's done, I, I can sympathize with his position. Uh, what he wanted to do was to have a land reform against the fact that the most valuable land in the country was still in the possession of British colonialists. And when the British departed, they had promised to somehow buy out those guys and let them leave if they wanted to, so that the black majority of Zimbabwe could get their hands on some decent land. And that was never done. So it all started from there. And, of course, the British screamed bloody murder, and they put the BBC into high gear, and therefore uh, poor Mugabe is demonized. So why are they targeting uh, Zimbabwe? Simply because this is a treasure trove of minerals and strategic raw materials, which is now closely allied with China. So the cover story is humanitarianism, human rights. The reality is a cynical attempt to systematically cut off sources of raw materials. The well, I'm, I'm also thinking of a good example in Sudan and yeah, Darfur. Yeah, that's the one I was just going to do. 
Yeah, and, and again, I think these people need to learn the lesson of imperialism. I'm not just against the Iraq war. I'm against the Afghan war. I'm against imperialism in general. The lesson of imperialism is, but out of the internal affairs of sovereign states. I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Power Shift in Washington. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. That gets us then to Tibet. This is obviously an example of the insurrection in Tibet, I mean, and the role of the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama was on the U.S. intelligence payroll going back to the 1950s. The whole Dalai Lama operation in, in northern India and Nepal and these places is funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. They may get money from other foundations, but you get the idea. Um, the goal of this is quite simply to begin the destabilization of China, the biggest country in the world, and a nuclear power. It's a, it's a country that has intercontinental ballistic missiles and H-bombs. You are playing with fire in this case. Iran has no such ability. There might be somebody in Iran who wants to strike the United States. They can't do it. In China, it's quite different. There are ICBMs. They can come down on your head. Uh, but people who would be horrified by, by any move towards Iran think that fomenting an insurrection in Tibet is just hunky-dory. It just shows how much things have changed and how little people uh, understand it. You know, when you were uh, speaking about the new uh, strategy to uh, uh, couch uh, imperialism as a, a humanitarian invasion or humanitarian help, it always amazes me that people could fall for the idea that the U.S. would be intervening for humanitarian reasons when they've just slaughtered millions of people in Iraq. I agree. I, I think anybody who has learned anything at all from Iraq and from Afghanistan, because this is, this is not different, it's the same. It's the same bankrupt imperialist policy, although there is a difference, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, the, the, uh, the lesson of it for me is imperialism is bad. Some people seem to think the Iraq war is bad. That is very narrow, and that, that will not do. And I think the larger question of imperialism, that's why I keep repeating it. It has to be raised, and there is no doubt that that's what this stuff is. But now let's look a little bit towards the end game. Your two centers of power are Russia and China. They have to be crushed so that the Anglo-American empire can survive for 100 years. They tried to go through Russia. It didn't work. Now Brzezinski, I would call people's attention to an op-ed by Brzezinski published on the 30th of November, uh, 2007, here in the Washington Post, so on the Saturday or Sunday of Thanksgiving, I guess it must have been, or shortly after Thanksgiving, anyway, where Brzezinski said he had been to China and he now was coming back with a strategy. Now, the strategy is obviously, first of all, to strip all of the Chinese allies and trading partners and oil uh, purveyors, right? Get rid of all of them. Stop the Chinese. Kick the Chinese out of Africa. Africa descends into flames as a battleground between the U.S. and the Chinese. You've got U.S. AFRICOM. For the first time, there's now a U.S. military command for Africa alone. It's currently located in Stuttgart. Uh, it is about to go, or maybe already has gone, to Ethiopia, where it's going to be located. I myself have been on the Algerian radio several times in the past year, talking to them about al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has now shown up in 
Algeria, in Tunisia, and in Morocco. And they wanted to know, what does this mean that al-Qaeda comes to us, of all places? And the answer, of course, is you're under attack by the U.S. and the British. And al-Qaeda is a way that they're going to do that. Why? Because Algeria is a huge oil producer and could sell uh, to China. So now let's look at the, at the main thing. Uh, I believe there will be no attack on Iran. Uh, and we could go through all kinds of evidence of this. Uh, Bush and Admiral Mullen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff have warned uh, the, uh, the government of uh, Israel not to attack Iran. Uh, and rather what's going on is a deal with Iran. Iran is being given the right to continue to enrich uranium, and I'm sure that you know, that will be made even easier as, as time goes on, because there's a, there's a part of this that has to do with the, the power shift in the U.S. government. But let me just finish the, the international part, and then we'll bring it back home. Um, rather, there's a different attack going on. If you go back to the uh, Chicago Democratic debate of July of last year, Obama demanded the unilateral U.S. bombing of Pakistan uh, without reference to the Musharraf government. Now, that was a very, very aggressive, warmonger-style policy for him to recommend. supposed to be the peace candidate. Clinton said, that's too much. Uh, Don't talk about these things. McCain said, this is irresponsible to propose. Bush said... I never do anything without talking to my friend Musharraf. So Obama demanded the bombing of Pakistan, and sure enough, that is now U.S. policy. Because of the seizure of power by the Rockefeller Trilateral Brzezinski group, uh, the U.S. is now recklessly bombing northern Pakistan. It's all being done unilaterally. It is causing huge uh, numbers of casualties, and it has caused a crisis between the Islamabad government and the U.S. Now, the Islamabad government is now uh, Prime Minister Gilani. Gilani is already a U.S. puppet, but there are some limits. And he says, look, we're a, an independent, sovereign nation. We have dignity. We're fighting the war on terror in our way, and we don't expect you to come into our country and bomb uh, northwest Pakistan to kingdom come. And now it's going to be a, a land invasion. That's what I see immediately on the horizon, is that U.S. and other NATO troops are going to cross that Durand line out of Afghanistan and into northern Pakistan. Afghani troops may join them as cannon fodder. As a matter of fact, uh, Karzai, the puppet president of Afghanistan, has said that he is going to invade Pakistan to snuff out these centers of Taliban and related things. And of course, the the, the cover story here, this is the one place in the world where the cover story is still bin Laden, al-Qaeda, Taliban. Now, what is the goal, however? Why keep the Afghan war going? Why escalate the Afghan war, as Obama has demanded, as McCain has demanded? Why are they so focused on Afghanistan? The difference is that this is now a means to destroy Pakistan. In other words, by... By heating up Afghanistan, you get this situation where you're constantly violating the sovereignty of Pakistan, and you can promote the collapse of the Pakistani central government by humiliating them, mortifying them, uh, scorning them, right? You know, double-crossing them in every way. And they have a very elaborate plan for what's going to happen with Pakistan. It's going to be divided into four or five parts. We have Balochistan. We have Sindh, we have Waziristan, we have Pashtunistan, 
In other words, it's going to be carved, and God knows how many pieces are going to come out of that. Why do this? Well, that's what I was just going to ask you. Why? They're also a nuclear power. They're a Chinese ally. They are a Chinese ally. They've always been a Chinese ally. They've always inclined to take the side of China against India for the obvious reasons, and therefore, under crisis conditions, it's clear which way Pakistan would go, even if they're not going that way overwhelmingly now. If you have a Pakistani central government, it's going to be pro-Chinese, just by the nature of the thing. They're also a very important commercial partner for things having to do with pipelines and other sorts of arrangements uh, with, with China. So the idea is every Chinese ally in the world is under attack, from Venezuela to uh, Zimbabwe to Sudan to Burma to Pakistan. They're all under attack, and the big one is Pakistan. The people who are so worried about Iran should be much more worried about Pakistan. It's three times bigger with nuclear weapons and some medium-range missiles to deliver them. Well, what has been the relationship of Secretary of Defense Robert Gates to Zbigniew Brzezinski? That he was his office boy. And that gets us now to who's doing all this, right? This actually should have been our headline at the beginning, but uh, have patience. Well, uh, I was going to ask you, is, is it true Bush, then that Gates is a, is a, a Sovietologist as sure, well? Sure. Again, Brzezinski, Brzezinski's big thing is that he was the head of the Columbia University Anti-Communist Institute, which is one of the premier anti-Russian, anti-Soviet think tanks of the entire Cold War. So he has his disciples, right? Look at Rice. She's another anti-Soviet operative from the same school. With Gates in particular, you go back to the Carter National Security Council from 1977 to 1971, you find a couple of things. Robert Gates, current uh, head of the uh, Pentagon, was Brzezinski's office boy for 77, 78, 79. General Odom, who just died, who became, he got himself, uh, you know, reborn as a leftist by being against Bush and against the Iraq War. Odom is another anti-Russian, anti-Soviet specialist who was Brzezinski's right-hand man during his time at the National Security Council. Another guy who comes in there, Samuel Huntington, the, uh, the ideologue of the clash of civilizations, and of ethnic warfare inside the United States. In his new book, Who Are We? Uh, Samuel Huntington of Harvard, right? top neocon, was also working for Brzezinski during those years of the Carter National Security Council. So now let's see who is in power in Washington, D.C. Bush and Cheney and the neocons and their policies are out. You know, with regard to uh, Bush, Cheney, and the neocons, then are you saying that the strategy laid out in the Project for the New American Century, or PNAC, that the neocon document is now dead? Not operative. And and this was always a very low-level thing. This was basically uh, propaganda. This was not really a a comprehensive strategic plan. Um, I think people have radically overestimated the importance of that stuff. In other words, those guys didn't plan 9-11. They couldn't plan anything. Uh, they're just a bunch of uh, you know, neocon blabbermouths who, who happened to put this out, and they made some interesting formulations that showed how the faction as a whole was thinking. But this is not in anymore. What's operative now is the Brzezinski plan, and it looks different. And it, I'll just give you one radical difference. Under the old neocon thing, Israel was the center of the world. It was the hub of all strategy. For Brzezinski, Israel is just another expendable asset in the apocalyptic showdown with Moscow 
in Beijing. Now, the Israelis can see that. They're not happy, but there's very little they can do about it. There are certain groups inside Israel who would like to attack uh, Iran, and Brzezinski is saying no. And in that sense, I guess there's a certain marginal utility for this. But Brzezinski is not saying no to the attack on Iran because he wants peace. He wants a bigger, better, wider war that ultimately addresses Moscow and Beijing, which he would say are the real centers. Forget Tehran. Uh, it's a sideshow. If you crush Russia and China, everything else in the world will fall into place pretty much uh, automatically. So uh, there has been a big change. Now, who's doing this? Bush, Cheney are out. They're at the level of janitors, groundskeepers, figureheads. The Republicans are even complaining that Bush's schedule is now meeting groups of school children, purely uh, ceremonial, uh, fixture kind of uh, president. Who has power? Gates at the Pentagon, a disciple of, office boy of Brzezinski. Rice at the State Department. She is a student of Corbell, Albright's uh, father. And they all go back to the Brzezinski milieu, which is London during World War II, the Eastern European governments in exile, or British puppet regimes that were kept for Czechoslovakia and Poland in London during World War II. That's the Brzezinski family, the Korbel family. Korbel, Czech, Brzezinski, Polish, same idea from the British point of view. Well, Webster, while, while you're still on Condoleezza Rice, could you uh, discuss the shift in policy toward North Korea? Yeah, well, let me just tell you who the, who the whole cast of characters is. It's Gates, it's Rice, it's Paulson at the Treasury of Goldman Sachs. He's part of it. And you've got Admiral Mullen at the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, some others may be part of it. It's like a floating crap game. But this is now ruling the United States. This is the Principals Committee. It's an it's a interministerial committee of uh, these people are basically clerks in their uh, functioning. In other words, they carry out what somebody else has decided. Who else? Rockefeller, trilateral, Brzezinski is what's telling them what to do. In other words, they're not making this stuff up themselves as they go along. I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Power Shift in Washington. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now let's just go through the list. Uh, Gates. How do we know that Gates is, is in power? Gates has just purged the Air Force. He purged the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force, a top four-star general, and he kicked out the civilian secretary of the Air Force. Now, why? Those guys were up to their necks in 9-11. The Air Force in general was up to its neck in the air defense suppression of 9-11. Everybody knows this. And then last summer, we had what I think was the last gasp of the neocons was the rogue B-52. It was a desperate attempt by the Cheney gang to essentially hijack a B-52 intercontinental bomber load it up with six nuclear cruise missiles, fly it from North Dakota to Louisiana, and then to the Middle East, most probably to join in the Israeli attack on the 6th of September of last year against Syria and or Iran. That, I believe, was the plan. And somehow this was stopped. Somebody on the ground in Louisiana, some airmen, a lot of people have died around this, right? A lot of dead uh, dead Air Force officers and, and airmen. But somebody in Louisiana said no. And according to Wayne Madsen, as it went up the chain of command, it emerged that the consensus 
is he got up towards the Pentagon, should this plane be allowed to go, and when the intelligence agencies came in, the consensus of the regime was, no, it will not go. Cheney, you are grounded. You're not going to get your nuclear attack on Iran. And I believe that really was the last chance. So that was the, uh, the, the rogue B-52. So the entire Air Force is now being purged. As I say, Gates kicked out the top general, four stars, member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the civilian secretary of the Air Force. They're out on their ear. Remarkable thing. Hasn't happened in decades. And a purge of the Air Force is now being done. Guess by whom? By James Rodney Schlesinger. Rodney the robot. Trilateral. Carter administration. Secretary of Energy. Of course, he had been in the Nixon administration. He'd been head of the CIA. He'd been Secretary of Defense, uh, working with Kissinger back under Nixon. But it's interesting. The guy they bring in to purge the Air Force in detail and was getting down to colonels and majors and the rest of it is James Rodney Schlesinger, trilateral Carter veteran. What's he going to be doing? Well, what's, he, his, what's his position there? He's, he's the head of a, of a special commission to review safety procedures. But you can see what it is. He will kick out the old rogue network. In other words, the rogue network of the neocons, the people who brought you 9-11 and the rogue B-52, they will be purged. And now you're going to get a new rogue network coming in, Brzezinski trilateral operatives, mainly concerned with Russia and China and the big picture. No more this Middle East uh, obsession, you know, no more taking orders from the Israelis or whatever it is. But now going for the big prize, right, world domination for, for the next hundred years. So I think that shows you what's going on with Gates. Inside the Pentagon, also notice the presence of Mullen. Mullen has done a couple of things. Mullen is he's the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral. He has said to the Israelis, he, according to Haaretz, at the end of June, he was in Israel, and he told the Israeli general staff, no attack on Iran, boys. Forget it. You know, you'll be on your own. We're not involved. You know, we're telling you not to do it. Not only will we not help you, we're going to stop you from doing it. Uh, and he also said that in public. He said, look, we've got two wars going. That's more than enough. We can't have another war. We will not do it. And then that essentially Bush, Bush at that point had to bite his tongue and, and, and say the same thing. So I don't think there's going to be an attack on, on Iran. Now, the next one would be Rice. Uh, how can we see Rice as a powerful uh, operative of the Principals Committee? Well, in regard to North Korea, we've just had a deal with North Korea. The North Koreans blew up some some uh, cooling tower of a nuclear reactor or something, and they're going to be delisted. They're going to be delisted as a terrorist state. So we're opening up the prospect of normalized relations, maybe even ambassadors, between the U.S. and North Korea. According to the London Times, Cheney was apoplectic. Cheney was going bonkers on this. He did not want this to go through. He fought, he kicked, he bit, he scratched, and he got nowhere. Rice triumphed. Rice vanquishes Cheney. Cheney counts for nothing. He can take his pacemakers and his heart attacks and, and you know, go to the beach. He's finished. Uh, and at this point, Bolton, the neocon walrus, remember him? U.N. ambassador? Yes. Bolton, Bolton came out and said, this is the final collapse of the Bush foreign policy. Richard Pearl came out and said, this is the meltdown of the Bush foreign policy. And, of course, they're both right. It is the absolute finished uh, kaput uh, gravestone over the Bush foreign policy. And it's Rice doing this 
to uh, to Cheney. A couple of other examples um, with Iran. I mean, look what's going on with Iran. Uh, there's not going to be an attack on Iran. They're, they're, they're being offered the right to enrich uranium at the current level, basically for as long as they want. And you'll see that's that's what it's going to be. Javier Solana of the European Union went to Motaki, the Iranian foreign minister, with this uh, offer. And Motaki said he was very pleased. Uh, and it looks like they're going to get rid of Ahmadinejad within about a year. He'll be out because he's too strident, and they'll get somebody more conciliatory. One more couple of other examples. On economic policy, it's also very clear. When Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac began to go into crisis about a month ago... And they lost, what, half their value anyway? Yeah, sure. That was another systemic crisis. You had one systemic crisis with Bear Stearns, March 15th. The whole system was about to come down. This time it's Fannie and Freddie. So we're, we're having a systemic, in other words, a crisis that threatens to destroy the entire U.S. and British banking system. These crises are now coming at the rhythm of every 90 days or every 100 days or something like that. So we had Bear Stearns in the middle of, uh, of March, and now we had Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Now, Bush is, of course, a family of Roosevelt haters. They hate the New Deal. They hate everything to do with, with FDR. So Bush was thinking, I'll let them go bankrupt and get rid of them. Now, Paulson from Goldman Sachs went to him and said, Dear little puppet George, you are going to open, you're going to go out in public and approve the opening of the Federal Reserve discount window so that Fannie and Freddie can get cheap credit to prop up their derivatives uh, investments. And if you don't, you will be hooverized within a matter of days. And the Republican Party will cease to exist. And that will be the end of you and your legacy and everything that you represent. So at that point, Bush said, yes, sir. And in that, at that point, it was on that Friday afternoon a couple of weeks ago that the, the massive bailout of Fannie and Freddie began. Now, we've just had the same, uh, the same thing happening just in the last couple of days. There's now a huge bailout bill going through the House and the Senate. It's mainly a bailout of Goldman Sachs and company. It pretends to have something for the possible foreclosure victim, but this is minimal. It's mainly a bailout of Wall Street. And Bush said, I'm going to veto it. Paulson went to him again and said, listen, Sonny, you're going to sign it. And now Bush says he's going to sign it. So it, I don't even know if that has gone through the Senate, because I think it's still, it's still being debated in the Senate, unless they did it uh, last night. So these are all examples, right? Gates purges the Air Force and brings in Schlesinger. Rice walks all over Cheney in public. Paulson dictates policy to Bush not once but twice, forces an embarrassing turnaround. Mullen warns the Israelis, don't do it, and Bush has to chime in. No, we don't want that. So it's clear. What's running Washington is the Principals Committee, and Bush and Cheney are mainly bugaboos. They're kept around, I, I would say, for naive left liberals to keep them in the old thinking. In other words, the old thinking is, the main danger is the Iraq war, and then it might spread to Iran. And therefore, uh, you know, you've got to vote for Obama, I guess is the thing that, that a lot of these people would say. Uh, that is no longer the world. The world is now, interestingly, that the clique that's, that is running Obama turns out to be by far more aggressive, more insane, playing on a much bigger worldwide scale. O Obama even says this, right? He says, I have a global strategy. It's true. 
the neocons never really had a global strategy. Their map was, you know, Jerusalem and a circle of, you know, a few thousand miles around that. But now we've got something that goes from Venezuela to Colombia to the Polish missile crisis. These are the other things that, that Brzezinski has going, right? There's a huge crisis now about putting uh, U.S. missiles into Poland, a radar into the Czech Republic, and even some forward components of the system into Lithuania, former Soviet Republic of Lithuania, is going to get some pieces. So, Well, yeah, and they, they're claiming that it's a... a to protect against an attack from <laughs> Iran, it's but a first strike, it's a it's a first strike weapon. In other words, it's designed to suppress a Russian second strike against the U.S. nuclear surprise attack, and that is that is what the Russians say, and they are right, and this should not be done. There should be no NATO expansion. Nobody in this country wants to fight and die for Lithuania or Georgia or Ukraine. This is insane, and it's just it's just a recipe for nothing but trouble. The Russians are perfectly reasonable. You can get along famously with them if you just respect national sovereignty and stop pushing the NATO pawns and puppet states right up against the border of Mother Russia. And again, people who have done this in the past, Napoleon, Hitler, it doesn't end well, and it won't end well this time either. It's just too big, and there's too much resistance, and it, it'll never work. So again, uh, if, if the neocon had the elementary cunning of a bully. The neocon would pick on places like Iraq or Afghanistan or even Iran. They have almost no ability to strike the U.S. directly. Very limited, very little, a few little things here and there maybe, but no, nothing systematic. Brzezinski lacks the essential cunning of the bully in the sense that he wants to go straight at Moscow and Beijing. And again, these are countries that can and will defend themselves. They have intercontinental ballistic missiles. They have hydrogen warheads on them. They know what a CIA people power coup is. It's not going to be easy to repeat that again because uh, the Russians and the Chinese are just rounding up all these NGOs and subversion types that are being sent in, um, in specifically by a, a group you should know about, the Albert Einstein Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, under a guy called Gene Sharp. He claims to be an apostle of the nonviolence of Martin Luther King and Gandhi, but in practice what he does is overthrow governments that the U.S. and the British want to liquidate. He's the one who did uh, uh, the uh, Ukraine and, and the uh, Roses Revolution there in, in uh, Tiflis, Georgia. I'm speaking with author and economic historian Webster Tarpley. Today's show... Power Shift in Washington. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Where does the term Principles Committee come from? Uh, yeah. I, I haven't heard that name before. It, 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 well, look in my book, uh, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, and I will, I will show you in there that in the spring of 1999, the U.S. passed under the rule of the Principles Committee at least for several months and maybe for the whole 1999 to 2000 period. It was the second half of the Clinton administration after he had been fatally weakened by impeachment. Uh, the Principles Committee is a traditional interagency group. It's an IG or SIG, Special Interagency Group. It meets in the old executive office building. And if you go back to the press of spring 1999, you'll see that there's a lot of talk in the newspapers about the Principles Committee doing this, that, and the other thing. Mainly, 
They're the ones who bombed Serbia. Bill Clinton never ordered the bombing of Serbia. This was done by the Principles Committee. The, the problem that Clinton had was that he had hocked his presidency to avoid removal from office in the Senate. So he had to give away all of his powers, his concessions, to the various cliques and, and factions. The Principles Committee at that time was, and it's worth remembering who these were, Al Gore was the biggest warmonger of them all. Madeleine Albright, Secretary of State, William Cohen, Secretary of Defense, Hugh Shelton, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Richard Clark, the great darling of the 9-11 Commission, the guy who essentially invented the Al-Qaeda bin Laden myth of 9-11 by spewing it out all that day. Uh, he was another guy. And then you had people like Richard Holbrook, uh, Bill Richardson was certainly helping them along. I think he was energy secretary at the time. And what did they do? They wanted to bomb Serbia. Again, their, their main thrust was anti-Russian. If you bomb Serbia, it's like bombing Russia. That's how World War I started. People should go back and look at that. Russia, Russian support for Serbia is a constant uh, for all kinds of reasons. So they wanted to humiliate uh, Yeltsin and try to weaken Russia. So they decided they would bomb the hell out of Serbia. Russian Prime Minister Primakov was coming across the Atlantic with a peace deal. It would have worked. Gore gave the order to begin the bombing when Primakov was at mid-Atlantic. Primakov turned around when he heard that the bombs were falling on Serbia. So that was brought to you by Gore. So that was the, that's the Principles Committee as it was then. It's something that obviously takes control when the president is tremendously weakened. Clinton, after impeachment, tremendously weakened. Bush, now because of his his unpopularity, the fact that he's widely hated, the, the change in the Congress, of course, has, has contributed. The thing that got me alerted to this was I was listening to the Pentagon briefing in the first week of May, and suddenly a whole flurry of questions came up from the press corps about the Principles Committee. And I said to myself, oh my gosh, are they back? And then uh, a certain amount of empirical work, the kind of stuff that I've just said, when you see uh, Rice dictating to Cheney, when you see Gates purging the Air Force, when you see Paulson di dictating to Bush uh, and Mullen dictating to the Israelis, say that's, that's where the government is, is really located. The difference is that in 1999, the press was full of references to the Principles Committee. In other words, people sort of knew that that's who was in charge. Today, the references have been very, very few. And the main thing that got me going was a single day's briefing at the Pentagon, where the press were asking, hey, what's the Principles Committee going to do about this? And the Pentagon briefer said, you go to the White House and ask them over there. We think there's a Principles Committee meeting going on right now, but we don't know. And then it got into a bunch of details about this. And that was my signal that they were back. And now I think that is confirmed empirically by, uh, by a whole series of big things that they've done. Is it true that uh, Brzezinski family members uh, work for the presidential campaigns of both Barack Obama yes, and course. John McCain? Absolutely. And you should see, you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski is the big endorsement of Obama. Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski came to uh, Iowa when Obama gave his first foreign policy speech. Brzezinski was there. Obama praised him to the skies. Uh, Brzezinski was on television several times during the primaries, mocking Mrs. Clinton, uh, you know, denigrating her. <laughs> it got into misogyny. He began saying, uh, oh, Mrs. Clinton says she's been to 80 countries, or uh, he says, that's nothing. My travel agent has been to 150 countries. She has no qualifications. So very, very nasty 
male chauvinist stuff from from Brzezinski that was never never uh, repudiated by anybody in that campaign. And then you have Mark Brzezinski, the son. Mark Brzezinski would probably be a candidate to be the head of the National Security Council for Obama in the same way that uh, that uh, Brzezinski, Zbigniew Sr., was the head of the NSC uh, for Carter. And then on the other side, you've got Ian Brzezinski, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for NATO and Eastern European Affairs. So this is the guy with the Polish Missile Crisis, Kosovo Independence, and the whole range of provocations against Russia. He writes the speeches for McCain. The problem with the difference with McCain is with McCain, you don't get a facelift for imperialism. You get the same old, tired, neocon face on things. And you get the, the fact that he would be locked in combat with the Democratic Congress from day one. So if you think about what a McCain administration would look like, quite apart from you know, all the ill will that exists in the McCain camp, I'm sure that's very real, but McCain would be a tired, old, lame duck from the moment he arrived on the scene, checkmated and stymied by a very hostile Congress at every point, a transitional figure, kind of like Ratzinger, right, as Pope. Obviously, he can't be there for a long time because he's so old. And that, I think, would be a... Uh, that, that might be the lesser evil at this point, whereas if you put in Obama with the Democratic Congress, Brzezinski will be getting what he wants in foreign policy pretty much up and down the line. Well, what evidence is there that Barack Obama is mouthing Brzezinski's foreign policy strategy in his run for the Democratic nomination? I mean, we have spoken about Pakistan. That's pretty clear. Yeah, Pakistan is, is the clearest. In other words, the idea of talking to Iran and bombing Pakistan I mean, how would that occur? To, if you want to have a peace policy, you talk to both. If you want to have a war policy, you probably want to bomb Iran. But Obama says, talk to Iran, bomb Pakistan, and essentially destroy the country. That reflects Brzezinski very, very closely. The, the clearest uh, example is actually not in, uh, in foreign policy. It's in the area of, um, let's say, energy austerity. Uh, during the Oregon primary, Obama made this remarkable statement saying, you're not going to be able to have your SUVs, you're not going to be able to have uh, as much as you want to eat, you're not going to eat as much as you want, and you can't have your thermostat set for 72 degrees, be you in uh, the snows or the tundra or the subtropical, I don't forget what he said, but you're not, you can't have the car you want, you can't eat what you want, you can't have your thermostat set where you want and think that other countries will allow you to do that. Very strange remark. It's obviously full of Malthusian uh, overtones, austerity, sacrifice, the lowering of the standard of living. God knows, in this country, we've had the living standard has been cut by two-thirds since the mid-60s, minus 60%, 65%. Now they're talking about another round of austerity and sacrifice. Um, but uh, apart from that, B Obama said these things. Now, where did that come from? I guess I'm the one who has brought this forward. Brzezinski's book is called A Second Chance. The second chance means that the U.S. had a chance in the 1990s to assert total world domination and crush all rivals. And now you have a second chance to do that, because the first chance was muffed by Bush the Elder, by Clinton, and, 
and others, right? and, and then Bush, uh, Bush the Younger. So in this book by Brzezinski, Second Chance, and I think you, you, can, uh, you can see the, uh, the text of it is, is online in various places. When was it published? This is a recent book. This is the last two or three years. But it, he has two pages in there where he says, we have to adjust the U.S. social model because it is seen as too opulent, too hedonistic, not aware enough of poverty in the world, not aware enough of environmental considerations, and we need to have a more attractive social model. Now, Russian commentators have pointed to this, that Brzezinski has a theory that one of the reasons Soviet foreign policy ran out of steam was because the Soviet Russian social model was not seen as attractive in the third world. And what Brzezinski is saying is, we have to have domestic austerity as a means of window dressing so that people in other parts of the world will, will find our social model attractive. So, they, of course, this is also done in bad faith, because what, what, what Brzezinski is also demanding is, when you have Bear Stearns blowing up, when you have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac blowing up, the call from Wall Street is crushing domestic austerity. It would lower the standard of living of the American people and send the proceeds to Wall Street to bail out Bear Stearns, Soros, Rockefeller, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, uh, Citibank, J.P. Morgan Chase. In other words, the jackals, the hyenas, the vultures, the ticks, the lampreys of Wall Street. So here's the idea, though. What you can see there is the austerity of the coming regime, if that's what it's going to be, will be done under left cover. Not, you know, we, we want sacrifices for the war on terror. No, it'll be we have to uh, think about the third world, or we have to think about the polar bears, or we have to think about um, other, other considerations that would, that would be brought forward. So this is now the new world, and, and the, the problem we have is a, a lot of people, they've learned uh, that the neocons are bad, and they have a good analysis on the neocons. That is simply not relevant. Imperialism is not Johnny One Note. It can't be. Um, if you just look at the recent past, um, in the 1960s, who did you have? Bader Meinhof Group, left-wing cover. The uh, Red Brigades, Maoist, left-wing. The Weathermen, Maoist, left-wing, right? Bernardine Dorn, Bill Ayers, all, all left cover. In the 1970s, it then became PLO political terrorism, things like uh, the Achille Lauro or the 1972 Olympics or Leila Khaled blowing up airplanes in the desert, then you get into the 1980s, it becomes a combination of Islamic fundamentalism, right? Now it becomes not political, but religious-based. And then in the 1990s, terrorism suddenly takes on the aspect of white American men who are right-wing anarchists and don't like the government, sort of the McVeigh uh, syndrome. And then, it, then, of course, in 2001, you get 9-11. So it changes you go through these big changes as the needs of imperialism and imperialist strategy change. These false flag terror strategies are adjusted to, uh, to deal with that. And now we're going through that again. Uh, it, part of it is, again, because the, the collapse of the dollar is now so acute that you've got to have a, a left-cover government in the U.S. to impose austerity and cut living standards and, and do all of that now with some left-wing story rather than a, a neocon story. But the other thing is, 
that the war on terror has worn out its welcome. It's no longer credible in the world. It's a bad joke. It's a laughing stock in many ways. So now you've got to come with some kind of a new look, and it's got to be human rights, humanitarianism, fervent idealism, cooperation, uh, an attempt to to uh, to restore the fortunes of imperialism that way. I would just urge people, don't go along with it. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Power Shift in Washington. Webster Tarpley is an author, economic historian, investigative journalist, and lecturer. Today we discussed his newest article, U.S. Policy Shift on Iran-Iraq Again Shows Brzezinski Rules in Washington. Tarpley is author of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Against Oligarchy, a collection of essays and speeches from the years 1970 to 1996, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is also author of Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, Your Guide Through the Greatest Financial Crisis in Human History. Webster Tarpley's latest book, Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, is available at Amazon.com. Soon to be published is Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what's inside yourself, 